It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. If you listen to this show regularly, one thing you may notice is that I tend to read a lot of books, watch a lot of movies and TV shows, and certainly more than Jason. And I'm curious, Jason, have you heard of this Netflix sensation show called The Squid Game? I know nothing of what you speak. Okay. Well, since we're recording this episode almost a month in advance, you never know what's going to come out, but in terms of the news and developments. So maybe by the time this comes out, a lot more people will have heard of this show. It is a South Korean series on Netflix that I saw while just browsing through a few days ago. I was at my sister's place and we were just like looking for something to watch and nothing was really inspiring us. And I thought, hmm, look at this show. This looks interesting. And we watched a few minutes of it and we're like, eh. It's kind of weird because... Netflix automatically set it to English dub. So you're hearing English, but it's not matching up with the actor's mouth. So that was a little strange. I was just a little too lazy to switch it. So maybe that was part of the turnoff. And we gave up on it. And then like either later that day or the next day, we decided to give it another try. And we watched the first full episode. And it was incredibly violent so much so that my sister was just deeply freaked out by it. And I was observing how I wasn't that disturbed. It was certainly making me feel squeamish. But one thing I've thought about a number of times is how a lot of violent TV shows, movies, etc. There's just so much out there that I almost feel numb to it. And that at times feels really disturbing. You know, and I've been kind of trying to observe, like, why am I watching something like this? I wouldn't say that I like it. If it was my preference, I wouldn't want to see it. But certainly I chose to watch it and it didn't feel as disturbed as my sister. And we stopped at that first episode and I thought, well, yeah, it was really disturbing, but I'm very curious about what happens next. So today I decided to watch a few more episodes on my own and... I also like looked it up briefly online. I'm trying not to see any spoilers, but it seems like it's this big sensation, as I said. And there's a lot that I would like to read about it if I do finish the show. But at this point, I'm going to wait and see if I do. It looks like I will. So I'm not ready to read the spoilers. I'm not going to give any spoilers to you, Jason, or anyone else. Although I would say the biggest spoiler that I want to share is that it's very, very violent. And the end of the first episode is like a holy wow, like this is kind of crazy what's happening. It reminds me a bit of moments in Game of Thrones where something really extreme happens and you're so taken aback by it and how, A, there's like a connection to maybe some characters that takes your breath away, but it's also kind of nuts when you see that type of violence and think about like how accessible that is. You know, like I imagine on Netflix, there's a lot of kids that watch without parental supervision 
and to see intense violence of this sort is just kind of disturbing on a lot of levels versus like a adult who's perhaps more mentally prepared to deal with it. And like my sister kind of choose to say no and to stop it. And that's certainly something I'm reflecting on. But I would say that before having like just observed this show, and I'll give you the premise of it again, without spoilers, it's called the Squid Game. And they explain this at the beginning, that name is based on like a, as nothing I'm familiar with, I don't know if it's a Korean game, but they explain it in the very beginning. And it doesn't, you know, you're like, okay, I, I guess I understand what they're talking about. But it's the show is is literally about a game that some adults play circumstances I won't fully mention based on childhood games. And the other big theme of the show, in addition to violence, is money. And after the third episode, or maybe it was at the beginning of the fourth, with which I just started watching, I was reflecting on like, hmm, maybe shows like this are really meant as a deep social commentary. And I hope that that's the point of the show. Like, I think sometimes when we're shocked to that extent, we can like step back and not only think about why we are shocked, offended, or triggered, but what is that trying to say about humanity? And for me, again, without giving a spoiler away, there was this moment of thinking how violence and money are often hand in hand. The show has themes of desperation, people doing unethical things in order to literally survive, people doing unethical things to just get by financially, all of the people that are impacted by debt, and how we can become so numb to other people's suffering, as we've talked a lot about on the show, because we're just trying to get by ourselves. And I apologize, I'm sitting at <laughs> in a little area of my parents' home, and it's a little loud here. So if you hear a lot of background noise, not much I can do about it today. But I think that was what was really striking me today as I was observing the core of the show. Like if I, once I stepped back and like, kind of, you know, you get so immersed in a world and you're just kind of like going along with it. And it isn't until you step back and examine it that maybe you see a deeper meaning behind it. The show reminds me a bit of The Hunger Game. So for those who who haven't or are going to choose not to watch The Squid Game, it's got that feeling, almost like a dystopian feeling of like really crazy things happening to people. And some of them are not choosing these crazy things. Some of them are. And like just kind of the casualness of violence sometimes. And it got me thinking about how some people are very casual about death in general, and I wonder why that is, you know? I don't feel that casual about it, I don't think, but as in past episodes, we've talked about things like, what's the term of when we're, we're so overwhelmed we can't even process tragedy? What's the term, Jason? Compassion fade. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, compassion fade and compassion fatigue are, mm -hmm. are topics that we've addressed. And I wonder if that's playing a role in this too. Whereas like, I'm just sitting there watching all this violence happen on a TV show and like on the surface level, it doesn't seem to be bothering me that much. Almost as if I'm watching a news report about how many COVID deaths there are, for example, or, or some war related death, uh, you know, these things that we, we take in and we know that they're sad, but at the same time, 
we don't go to this deep level sometimes of being of being really, really disturbed by it. And I think there's a big difference between the fictional death versus real death that's happening in the news. But also there's this crossover where people will sit and subject themselves to all these horrible media stories. We talked about recently the case of Gabby Petito, which is really interesting to be recording now. I think this has been like a week and a half since we did that episode and a lot has developed. They found her body. So it was now confirmed that she's no longer alive. There's at the time of, of this recording at the end of September, 2021, we don't really know what happened, but her story has been all over social media, all over the news. And I've often just reflected on the obsession with it, the obsession at first with this missing girl and maybe the mystery behind it, but then the obsession with like cracking the case and trying to figure out why she and other people have gone missing and have been involved in violent deaths and how it's almost like a form of entertainment, I suppose. And so many people subjecting themselves to and getting immersed in death, I suppose, is is kind of a fascinating thing that I'm reflecting on right now. Well, I want to bring up a very real situation since we're talking about violence and, and death in the real world. Last Monday, so 10 days prior to the recording of this episode, at about 5.36 in the morning, I was sleeping and heard three really loud bangs. And that's not uncommon for the neighborhood in Los Angeles that I live in because people are setting off fireworks on a pretty consistent basis here. And I thought nothing of it. It's early Monday morning. Someone's setting off fireworks. It's par for the course here. Well, I ended up waking up around 8.30 that morning, I think. So that was about two and a half to three hours after I heard those bangs. And I walk into my kitchen and about 50 feet or so, give or take, from my kitchen window is a alleyway. And I notice that there's a pop-up tent set up in the alleyway. And I thought, what? That's, that's interesting. The kind of pop-up tent you would see at like a food festival, you know, where people are serving that kind of like large white pop-up tent with a metal frame. And I see people walking back and forth. There's a small gate in my alleyway where I can see into the alley. And I thought, well, this is, this is bizarre. Why is there a pop-up tent and a bunch of people walking back and forth? So I stopped what I was doing. I was prepping breakfast and I, I put my shoes on and walked out the back door, the back sliding door to the alley. And I, you know, there was a guy standing right in front of my gate, Whitney, with his back turned. And I thought, you know, excuse me, what's going on here? And it was a forensics guy. And he, he looks over at another guy and kind of gestures over and a detective walks up. And I said, yeah, detective, what's going on here? I couldn't see what was under the tent, right? Even though it was in the back of my gate. And he said, we suspect there was a homicide behind your house last night. It's not what you expect to hear, you know, first thing on a Monday morning making breakfast. And, you know, my, my heart dropped immediately. And I still don't know that much. I haven't gone back on Google, but what I did know and the officer, I asked him for details. I said, can you share any details with me? He said, we, we literally just arrived on the scene. We're checking into it. But from what I understand, it was a 36-year-old man. And someone saw like a old U-Haul truck that was like spray painted speed out of the alleyway. So I don't know who it was or why it happened, but, you know, a young man was shot to death literally 50 feet outside my kitchen window. 
you know? And it brings up an interesting feeling, Whitney. You talk about the emotions that death engenders, whether it's death that we're viewing in media and entertainment or actual death. For any longtime listeners or any new listeners, I, I grew up in the city of Detroit and didn't live in like horrifying neighborhoods, but it was Detroit. I grew up in the 80s. It was literally the murder capital of the United States for most of the 1980s. I lived on the south side of Chicago. I lived in the Bay Area. I lived in LA for 15 years. I've never, I have never been close, that close to a murder where someone was shot to death outside my kitchen window in the alley. I mean, that, that, that freaks me out, A, for my own safety, but B, it's a sick feeling in my stomach for someone who lost their life, you know, and, and I've, I've never been physically that close to that kind of death, Whitney. And the neighbors left flowers out there. There's actually a memorial out there with a cross and a Virgin Mary and some flowers. It was, it was actually really kind of, of the neighbors to do that. But when I walk through that alleyway, I went yesterday, I just, I get this really deeply unsettling feeling when I walk through that alleyway now. It was never a great place. I mean, it's not like, yay, this is a really beautiful alley. But now even more so, even when I think about it now, I, I get a little bit nauseous. And I was nauseous for about two days after this happened. And, you know, it, it's an interesting thing because it, what it brings up for me, Wit, is how do I phrase this? It's almost like there's an anonymousness around death that maybe hits us in a different way, obviously, this is an obvious statement, than someone we know. I didn't know who this young man was, this 36-year-old man. I don't know why he was murdered or shot in my alley. I have no idea any of the details, right? It's a sick feeling just because of the general loss of a human life and that it's so close to me and where I live. But of course, had it been someone I knew or even knew casually, like say a neighbor in the neighborhood, I'm sure that my emotional reaction would have been very different. So it's interesting when you bring up things like COVID or entertainment or we read news stories about Gabby Petito, I don't personally feel like a deep sense of gravity because I didn't know those people. It's a strange thing to try and verbalize, but it's almost as if the anonymousness and the scope of death and violence that is happening on the planet, whether that's genocide, natural disasters, COVID, like there's so much death happening right now, heart disease, cancer, et cetera. To embrace the magnitude of it, I feel like psychologically, they're almost, I don't know, has to be. That's not the right phrase I want to use. But for me, at least, there's a detachment because if I dwell too much on the totality and the magnitude of that kind of death and suffering on the planet, Whitney, I feel like I just want to curl up in a ball and just like shut off from the world completely. So there's almost like a level of detachment or compartmentalization around this. And I'm wondering if if you relate as a sensitive person, because I know that partially, I know that I'm doing that. I know that I'm detaching because I will be absolutely overwhelmed by the feeling of horror and sadness if I go too deep into all of that's happening on a global level. Does that make sense? Yes. And that actually touches upon something else I wanted to bring up. And I'm curious if you saw this, Jason. I don't want to share too many details out of compassion for the person that posted this, but maybe this will ring a bell. Otherwise, I'll, I'll send you something behind the scenes so you can fully respond to it. So Jason and I have multiple Instagram accounts. We have our own. I have two. Jason has his own. And then we have the Wellevator Instagram account. And the two of us manage it together. We both post things on there and we both will follow people from time to time. So you must have followed this person, Jason, because I believe it's someone you're connected to. And I, I think you might've done a project with them. <laughs> 
And this person posted something yesterday and I was like, oh, I was very triggered by it. It was about COVID and I couldn't fully tell what the point of this was, but it was basically making light of COVID or and or saying it in a combative way or a like a way that felt like it was creating division. And I won't say the exact words again to protect this person because I, I'll follow up on, on that reason in a moment. But it was something around like, hey, I know about COVID being risky. Is this ringing any bells for you, Jason? Like I saw this post and I was like, I literally, I went immediately went to this person's account and I was like, who posted this and why are we following them? And then I saw who this person was and I was like, oh, okay, this is probably one of Jason's contacts. And I almost messaged you about it, Jason, because like my gut was actually to go and follow this person. But then I thought, I'm going to step back and I'll deal with it later. And then I forgot about it. But then I went on our account today and this person actually posted a bit of an apology about this. And actually the apology was beautifully written and it was acknowledging this person's flaws and their difference in thinking and all the the reactions that they got. And then I went and I looked at all of the comments and I got very triggered by this, Jason, because again, like I had another level of trigger because I saw how divided people were in the comments. I saw people writing things like, how dare you say something, post something like this when people are dying. This is so insensitive. And then other people going, heck yes, like I have the right to choose bubble, you know, like all these people agreeing and or ha ha ha, I can totally relate. And then in the newer post, people were saying like, you don't need to apologize for something like this. Like you need to stand your ground. And these people are just overreacting. And, you know, then it got into all the different extremes on COVID in terms of like, yeah, these people must be, the people that are offended must be like the sheeple who are just following the mass media, you know, and like all this argument. And I left this feeling sad, Jason. I left this feeling like, oh my gosh, we just cannot get along. And then I had this feeling of, wow, like, We are so fortunate to be alive and healthy, and yet people are spending their time cutting each other down. And as we know on this show, being so focused around mental health, the suffering that that type of division and cruelty and verbal bullying and shaming, all of that can be so horrific. And so whether somebody is suffering silently or suffering publicly or suffering so much that they decide to do something drastic in their own lives. It's just so heartbreaking. And my bigger point is that like we are all collectively going through a pandemic and people are having such extreme reactions. And it's like at the core, the pandemic is so sad and so full of physical suffering. But on top of that, there's this added level this added layer of cruelty to one another amongst a really hard time. And I think actually this comes up in the show, The Squid Game, just to tie it back in. There's another moment in the show, I think it was probably in the third or fourth episode, where 
again, <laughs> I'm really trying not to give any spoilers, but there, the show is like very is based in something very violent, right? So if you've ever seen the Hunger Games, it's similar in that sense where some really extreme things happen to a collective group of people. And that's partially their choice and partially they went in very ignorantly and ended up in this situation that they weren't intending, right? So you're seeing this group of people who are extremely disturbed about what's happening to them and around them. But it's like an external thing, right? Like somebody is doing it to them and they, to a great extent, don't have control over it, if this makes sense, right? And you would think that a group of people who are collectively going through a really hard time that they don't feel like they have control over would come together to unify. But in this third or fourth episode, you see them start to group off and start to fight within themselves. So horrific things are happening on the outside and on the inside because these people just can't get along. And there's this moment in the show where something really innocent happens. This I can share. They're they're all eating together and one person goes and gets extra food, which causes, I believe inadvertently, somebody else to miss out on eating. And the person that didn't get to eat approaches one of the people that had seconds and was like, how dare you take away my food? This isn't fair. And they start to fight. And it's like this simple thing, this basic human need that they have to eat food. And yet somebody else feels entitled enough to take more. And I think on some level, that's kind of how I felt about that post on Instagram. It's like the entitlement that goes into someone saying, hey, I'm fine from COVID. Like, I'm good. Yeah, there are, quote, risks happening, but I'm okay. And you can see why people in the comments are offended by them. It's like, you have the privilege of being okay during COVID. You have the privilege of maybe, but who knows? You you may have the privilege of not even having a loved one who is physically affected by COVID. And so you're going to go around posting on social media where you have influence in this almost like ignorant privilege perspective. While a lot of people in the audience have been affected and they're suffering and they're feeling like, wow, you're not even going to acknowledge my suffering because it's self-serving for you to be posting something like this because you have an agenda here, right? So we see a lot of these things playing around out in in society. And today I'm just kind of contemplating it, Jason. It's like, what do you do when you're witnessing these things? There's this part of me that's like, well, I could unfollow this person on Instagram, but what's that going to do? It's not going to change them. I'm just going to ignore it. I could choose not to watch the news, but it doesn't mean that horrific things stop happening. So do I face them head on and do I become a bigger activist? But then how do you do all that? I know this is something you can talk about, Jason. It's like each of us may be holding on to a lot of our own internal suffering or dealing with a lot of our internal suffering. And so to add on the layers of other people And the anger or the triggers or the sadness that we may feel from other people's actions. I guess you can start to see why compassion fade and fatigue happens and also why people just stand back and watch because maybe they don't have the emotional capacity to do anything or maybe they feel completely helpless. And like, I think we're witnessing a lot of that right now. And maybe that's just part of the human experience or maybe it's 
a reflection of why a society may crumble because like we just don't have the bandwidth to manage all of these horrific things that are constantly happening around us and people's reactions to them. I think what's happening is absolutely nothing new in terms of the challenges to interrelate, cooperate, share, and understand one another. I think if anything, technology, social media, smartphones, etc., has intensified and magnified the apparent divisions and differences of opinion. And dare I say, people attempting to, as I mentioned, Alex Ebert calls it, sovereign siloed realities. You're like, your reality isn't my reality. My reality is this. COVID can't touch me. I'm immune to COVID, whatever it is. But I think what I will sit and, and contemplate sometimes, Whitney, is whether or not it is actually even achievable for something like world peace to happen, whether or not it's feasible for us to unite as Americans, we live in the United States of America, or as a global population. I mean, this pandemic, as an example, has shown us pockets of unity, but I think more so it's shown us the cracks and fissures in culture and human society in general. And the reason that I question whether or not actual global cooperation could happen or whether or not, you know, world peace is even a thing that's achievable ever is there was a compendium called The Lessons of History written by uh, Will and Ariel Durant. And they did some historical research and they found that in the 3,421 years of recorded history, give or take when this was written, it's probably more now, but 3,421 years of our historical record as we know it as humanity, there have been only 268 scattered years without war on the planet. That's 8% of human recorded history, 8% of our recorded current history. Think about that for a second. That is a, it's horrifying on so many levels to think about, but not surprising. I mean, if you think about our lifetimes, Whitney, there's been near constant war somewhere on the planet. Maybe not that the United States has been involved. I mean, we could talk about shadow operations and CIA and the things that the US has been involved in, okay? But if we're talking about like countries at war or juntas or overtaking military operations, whatever it is, that's been constant for decades now. And it does make me question what are the underlying attitudes and points of view and perspectives that are driving our seemingly inexhaustible need to kill each other, overthrow each other, and try to control one another? Like, we can all agree this is kind of a deep thing that has been a really kind of concerning flaw in, in the human psyche. Is it that you have something I want, be it land, be it resources, and you're not going to give it to me? So I'm going to take it from you through force. Let's not talk about sharing. Let's not talk about dividing up resources. I want what you have, and you won't give it to me willingly, so I will exert violence upon you. I mean, this is, this is not a new concept. We're doing it now. We're doing it now for rare earth minerals. We're doing it for water. We're doing it for farmland. We're doing it for oil. People are being murdered and overthrown and destroyed for resources. This is happening. But it's like... 
what is behind the greed and the cruelty and the otherness, right? Because I think it, part of it is if we get into the isms of, of racism, speciesism, sexism, the isms, it's a separation of you are less than I am as a being. Therefore, I have the right and the manifest destiny, if you will, to take what I want from you, even if that's your own life, because you're less than I am. It's a dehumanization. It's a devaluation of another being's life for their flesh, their milk, their resources, their oil, etc. Right. But it's like, what is that? I sit and I think, where does that come from in the human psyche that we think it's okay to do that? And not just okay to do that, but on a global level, continue to perpetuate it. I mean, 8%, Whitney, of recorded history has been without war. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, you know, not being uh, somebody who studies that history and understands a lot of this, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It also reminds me of the reflections I've heard. I mean, I have a few friends and my mother and my sister and watching other people online respond to Gabby Petito's case, which again, is just evoked so much fascination, even though I learned that 600,000 people go missing in the US alone every year, approximately. It's shifts around, but that's the average, 600,000, which is beyond comprehension to me, right? And I actually shared that metric and some people even responded like, well, most of those people are found or most of those people are, the, you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah, but still it's, it's a really horrific number. Like, why do we justify it or minimize it by saying, well, most of blank, you know, it's it, these weird responses. But anyways, there's also this fascinating element of like, why are we focused on one of those 600,000 people? And this this happens so frequently, right? We hone in on one example, one case. And I, I don't really know at this point, there might be some psychology to dive into. And I'm sure people will publish some data around like, or their own observations on why this specific case has captured the interest. But one of the things that I'm hearing right now from people in my life who have been following the story is like, they want to know what the motive was for the, if it was indeed Gabby's fiance, Brian, who did this, people are like really interested in finding out why, you know, like, and then if it wasn't him, like why someone else, like they know for sure, according to the autopsy reports that this woman was murdered. So it doesn't really even matter who it was on some level, the big question is, well, why did they do it? And then there's other mysteries, like some of these missing people too, who we just have no data around and they're just cold cases and people will try for years to figure these things out. We have whole documentary series about these types of cases and sometimes they're solved 30 years later. Sometimes they're never solved. And I step back and wonder the same thing, Jason. It's like, why do people do these things? Like, why would you, you know, the serial murders and the, it's like somebody who's so deranged that they have to do this to multiple people over and over again. And yet they're so intelligent that they know like Ted Bundy immediately comes to mind, like the intelligence behind this man to figure out how to hide for so long and how to keep doing it. And right now, even with Brian Laundrie, who's Gabby's or was Gabby's fiance, they haven't been able to find him. And and everybody's like, 
how is this man getting away with this? Why it's been like a month since they believe she was killed and they haven't even been been able to locate this man. And, And that story, I think part of the fascination for me is that you can get away with these things. You know, it's like, it becomes like easy. Sometimes it becomes normalized. You just recognize all the flaws in our system. And I think that becomes really scary too, because I guess in my head, I'm thinking, well, nobody's going to do this because they wouldn't get away with it. Right. And then it's even more heartbreaking when it's supposedly somebody who was in this loving relationship with someone else. And you hear these stories of romantic partners and married couples or even children that are impacted by these things. And I think it can become so deeply disturbing. Now, to pivot into a different way of looking at these things, I, I have been reading this book. It's a really beautiful book about grief. And it's called, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. And it is so incredibly beautifully written. It's by a woman who, her husband drowned. And she's writing this whole book about mostly what she's learned from that experience. And the subtitle of the book is Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. And one of the big points of this book is how other people react to grief and the whole psychological reaction that our society collectively has and how maybe we brush things aside. We want to rush through them. We make it seem like it's so easy or as it's like we don't acknowledge that each individual has a different reaction to the grief and I think this book is mainly around individual experiences of grief from what I've read thus far, but it also in many ways applies to the collective grief we feel even when somebody else passes away. In fact, I did have a quote in here that gave me some perspective on the Gabby Petito case, especially my own reactions to it, but how other people were we're reacting. I ended up after we recorded our last video, I, I posted some things on on TikTok because I realized that I was actually in the Grand Teton National Park around the same time that reportedly Brian Laundrie was and supposedly Gabby Petito, whether she was alive or not, we don't know. She wasn't found until like a week or two ago. So her body was there. Whether she was alive or not, she was there at the same time I was. And there were reports of Brian being near the areas that I was. And I just was so disturbed by that. And I felt like a bit of survivor's guilt of like, wow, here I was enjoying this park in complete ignorance over the fact that somebody else was suffering or or being tortured or whatever was happening there. And there's, a you know, then this fear within me too of that, wow, this realization of how there can be really awful people right around you and you may never know, right? <laughs> like that creepy feeling of there, there was one particular experience where I heard this woman who picked up Brian because he was hitchhiking And she dropped him off in this area that I went to 90 minutes later. And it was this eerie feeling of knowing that I was near this man that has now become this national or maybe international 
focus and helplessness. Like I know I wasn't impacted. And again, there's like survivor's guilt, right? Because you know, maybe it was an isolated incident, but who's to say that this man hasn't hurt other people? We don't know that yet. Right. And then this other question of like, well, if he could do it, how many other people was I around that were doing awful things? How many things go completely undiscovered? Right. How many people are just suffering from abuse, emotional or physical, but they still live through it? You know, like it can become feel incredibly dark when you're confronted with those experiences. And anyways, that led me to making some, some TikTok videos. And one of the things that was really challenging was how many people were shaming me for posting about my experiences and my feelings. How many people were trying to gaslight me into thinking that I was only posting about it to get clout, which certainly was not anywhere in my consciousness. And then I had to step back and think like, am I doing it for that reason? Which I don't know. Not that I know. Anyways, I was reading this book. Well, this touches upon something that I think we discussed in another episode, Jason, about spiritual bypassing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, this book is fantastic. Specifically around like when we are confronted like with a horrifying or traumatic situation, where we're like, oh, no, it's all good. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's just what happens. This is what happens. That kind of bypassing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And how we tend to want to make everything positive and talk about the silver lining or things happen for a reason, how we often avoid pain. And somewhere in here, I highlighted so many sections of this that <laughs> I'm really having trouble even finding it. I mean, I'll keep looking through while you're talking, Jason. But there was a section in here that in essence was addressing the fact that it is natural for people to react in a way of sadness, even when we're not impacted directly, because by seeing what somebody else goes through, we're reminded that that could happen to us too. And that that really starts to impact our feelings of safety. And that's part of the reason that being too positive about things and, and constantly talking about the silver linings, like that doesn't address at the core that some of us feel incredibly powerless and unacknowledged, and we can start to become very disconnected. One section in here is about how when we're afraid of loss, we cling to a system of right and wrong, of well and unwell to safeguard our connections to those we love. We think barricading ourselves against pain and suffering will help us survive. We defend ourselves against losing it, but in doing so, we keep ourselves from living it. The tricky thing is true survival never exists in this in a world where we have to lie about our own hearts or pretend we're in more control than we are. It just makes us desperately more anxious and more rabid in our attempts to make everything work out in the end. Finding safety means to come together with open hearts and a willing curiosity about everything we experience, love, joy, optimism, fear, loss, and heartbreak. When there's nothing we can't answer with love and connection, we have a safety that can't be taken away by the external forces of the world. 
It won't keep us from our loss, but it will let us feel held and supported inside what cannot be made right. The real cutting edge of growth and development is in hurting with each other. It is in companionship, not correction. Acknowledgement, being seen and heard and witnessed inside the truth about one's own life is the only real medicine of grief. And I don't think that was the section specifically that reminded me of of the Gabby Petito stuff, but it in a way did because it is about connecting. And, and I think that's why I've been drawn to the Gabby Petito case is because I feel a connection to other people who are impacted by it, you know, and versus, I don't know if you looked at the chat, Jason, but I sent you those Instagram posts I was talking about. And I'm kind of curious if you feel called to respond to them without calling out the person. Maybe the reason I felt so triggered was that it did feel like it was about making COVID a this versus that situation, a right versus wrong, a good versus bad, the division I talked about. And that makes me feel disconnected from others versus what I'm really yearning for in these times of grief, in these times of global sadness is I want to feel connected to others. I want to feel accepted by others and respected by them. I don't want them to shame me out of my response to a horrible situation. I just, I feel like there's a massive amount of shaming and judgment and ridicule on all sides of this. And I wonder what this person's intention was, because when I first saw this post, I'm going to read the post without naming the person. I mean, so speaking of shame, if you do, it's easy to find who wrote it. And I don't want to participate in shaming this person. I'm okay with us discussing it. But if you share it, Jason, I think that could lead to any of our listeners going and finding out who posted it. And or even if that person listens, I mean, if they haven't by now, they probably put the clues together. But if that person listens to our show, like my intention is not to shame them whatsoever. My intention is to discuss how I responded to it. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, they compared eating COVID to a dessert. Let's just put it that way. Okay. They compared COVID to eating a dessert. That's yes. You said eating COVID. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, we don't want to do that. I would think that this person was attempting to be funny and it really didn't land for a lot of people. I think that that is part of it. And I want to say this. I think that there's a massive amount of pressure a lot of people are feeling to pick a side. I see a lot of pressure from a lot of people to, quote, be on the right side of history. That's a phrase that I keep seeing thrown around. You need to be a right on the right side of history. It's coming from both sides. Personally, Some people might disagree, like, well, you've chosen a side, Jason. I don't really feel like I am in one camp or another. And hopefully that comes through on this podcast and all of the previous episodes where we've discussed all of the nuances and intricacies and confusion around COVID. But my point is this. I think I'm giving this human being the benefit of the doubt and thinking they did this to try and get a giggle out of people. But certainly people's reaction to it was you're treating a very serious situation with too much levity. This brings up a a larger point, and and I I don't want to focus on the division too much of this, of people acting like either COVID isn't real, COVID deniers, or COVID isn't, quote, as bad as they say it is. What I want to highlight, what this brings up for me, is something totally different. 
And what it brings up for me, Whitney, is I've talked to comedian friends over COVID about this particular thing, that with the division, with the prevalence and continued momentum of cancel culture, and how incredibly sensitive and wounded people are right now, a lot of people who make their living doing some form of comedy or social commentary feel like, what the fuck can I say? It's almost like if I even attempt humor around it or bring even a modicum of levity, the vultures will come and tear me to shreds. And I have to agree with that to a degree. I, comedy is tough. I'm going to be the first to say that, especially when you're talking about death, murder, loss, pandemic. It's not easy to frame comedy around things that are very horrifying. I have found, though, for me, that sometimes in my healing process, sometimes, depending on the situation, it can be healing to bring some lightness and comedy and perspective to a situation. However, there's a lot of nuance in this. The delivery of it, the phrasing of how you say things, who you're saying it to, who's the room. You know, there's always that thing, read the room, read the fucking room. I don't think she read the room well, clearly. But my point is, I think that in the midst of horror, division, loss, pain, confusion, I mean, it's a fucking heavy time to be on planet Earth right now. I don't think anybody can deny that. And all due respect to anyone who's like, I had a great pandemic, like kudos to you. But I think for people who are open and sensitive and feeling beings, it is heavy to be alive right now. But... I think there is a role of comedy. I think there is a role of levity, but it's really challenging to do it right now. And if you slip up or people misinterpret what you're trying to do, they will tear you to fucking shreds. And I think that I, I believe that's what happened here. I don't believe she was trying to create more division per se. I believe maybe the intent was to like get a chuckle of the comparison, but you gotta, it's tough. It's tough to bring light and comedy to the situation. That's why I haven't posted. I mean, there's been some ideas, Whitney, I had for videos. I'm like, oh, this would be. And I'm like, don't do it. Just don't do it. Because I personally, and here's why I don't, why I haven't, right? With some of the ideas I've had to like bring some levity or comedy to it. Because I don't want to deal with the energy of what I'm going to receive that will consume days of my life of getting flamed on by people. I don't want to deal with the energy. I have other things I want to focus on in my life than dealing with being flamed on by people, right? And so be like, oh, well, that's, that's the antithesis of courage, Jason. You should just speak your voice. No, I don't want to deal with people's bullshit. I'm pretty tired of dealing with people's bullshit. And by putting certain things out, if it's not received well, you're going to have a whole lot of bullshit to deal with. Certainly, but one thing I've noticed from this person's post on Instagram, as well as what I posted on TikTok about Gabby Petito and being in the Grand Tetons at the time, I had people saying all sorts of weird things to me and accusing me of like posting the videos to capture views, which was, I know for sure was never my intention because I'm not even going to get into my thought process <laughs> because it's too long, but and never once did it even occur to me that a lot of people would see. One of my videos got over a million views and I actually ended up making it private because what I was posting turned out to, it was misinterpreted by enough people that it felt it actually 
could have gotten in the way of more important content around the case. So I thought, as interested as people were in this video I posted, it's actually not helping and I need to take it down because I don't want to hurt, right? So like, I think part of your point too, Jason, is like that fine line between posting something innocently and it being misinterpreted to the point where people may be hurt by it. That's why I actually think this person was wise in posting the apology. And it helped me understand them and their thought process more. But what disturbed me was the the reaction in the comments. And the comments, Jason, if you notice, are both sides. I would say maybe half and half, but also potentially more people being supportive of these posts than against them. Now, granted, maybe a lot of people unfollowed this person. I'm not sure. Some of them might have stuck around like I did or we did because it was our shared account. You know, it was the range of responses, right? So when you're saying these things of not wanting to deal with the BS, Jason, you may get a huge variety of them. And this is something that I think both of us have experienced in our online careers is sometimes you're going to be polarizing, even if you don't intend to be. And that's really tricky for me because I would rather be a little bit more even. I would rather have a high percentage of people liking what I do versus not liking it. I don't want that 50-50 because I, like many people, will will focus much more on the criticism and the anger than I will on the positivity. That's a hard thing to get over. And it sounds like you struggle with that too, Jason, because dealing with all the people calling you out and trying to cancel you is tough. But there are plenty of of examples of big, influential people being called out and dragged and somehow moving through it and continuing on with their careers. Even actually, I've been another thing I've been watching is the show about Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. And I'm watching and thinking, wow, <laughs> I remember growing up thinking Bill Clinton was like a really cool president. And I had no idea what was going on. Like I knew about the Monica Lewinsky stuff, but I did not know how many women he supposedly was fooling around with, right? Now, that's a bit separate from politics, but it still makes me feel a bit icky. I knew about JFK and a lot of people, you know, stories of similar things happening with him. But I also remember growing up thinking JFK was a pretty cool president, right? You know, some people can do some things that ethically do not agree with us, but other things that may ultimately make us feel okay. And I also think it shows that we are very complex and we're not these like, we're not defined by decisions that we make that don't please everyone, if that makes sense. Right. And I think that was actually part of the post that this person on Instagram articulated nicely is they acknowledge that they will continue to make mistakes and do things that upset people. And not in like, hey, I'm going to do this despite you. It's I'm a human being that makes mistakes and I'm not going to try to act as if I will never do it again, which I think some people, when they apologize, try to make it seem like, don't worry, that'll never happen. That is, you could not possibly know that about yourself. Because even well-intentioned people miss the mark, to your point, Jason. Now, I did find this section of 
it's okay that you're not okay that I wanted to read. And and that kind of ties into this because the title of this section is Victim Shaming in the Culture of Blame. It soothes our brains in some way to believe that through our own good sense, we and all that we love can be kept safe. And if something bad did happen through no fault of our own, we'd be strong enough to handle it. Brene Brown's research states that blame is a way to discharge pain and discomfort. Intense grief is a reminder that our lives here are tenuous at best. Evidence of someone else's nightmare is proof that we could be next. That's seriously uncomfortable evidence. We have to do some fancy footwork or rather fancy brain work to minimize our discomfort and maintain our sense of safety. When someone comes to you in your pain and says, I can't even imagine, the truth is they can imagine. Their brains automatically began to imagine. Seeing someone in pain touches off a reaction in us, and that reaction makes us very uncomfortable. Faced with this visceral knowledge that we too could be in a similar situation. How quick we are to move into debate rather than hang out in the actual pain of the situation. At the root of our fears around grief and in our approaches to grief and loss is a fear of connection, a fear of acknowledging, really feeling our relatedness. What happens to one person can happen to anyone. We see ourselves reflected in another person's pain, and we don't like to see ourselves there. Disasters and deaths bring out a level of emotional empathy that asks you to go there and to acknowledge that this could happen to you or someone you love, no matter how safe you try to be. We hate to see evidence of the fact that there is very little in this life over which we have control. And with that, Jason, I wonder, not only does that explain the obsession that some people have over stories like Gabby Petito which perhaps we're trying to soothe ourselves from the discomfort of seeing a seemingly innocent young woman go through something so horrific. Because I think that's why I posted my videos on TikTok. What I believe I was trying to express, but perhaps didn't have the words to at the time, was it was really creepy to look back and see myself in the exact same place that this woman was and almost feel like I'm lucky that I got out alive. And then again, to have that survivor's guilt of like, well, why did I get to come out of a park alive and she didn't? You know, how do I manage to get through my life and not go missing like 600,000 other people in this country every year? How am I able to make it through COVID without getting sick? You know, like there's that discomfort. And then I think COVID has brought it so close to home. Perhaps that's why people post things like this is because it feels better to say things that either make light of it, but also say like, hey, look at me, I've made it through, everything's okay. And again, I think the reason that that really misses the mark is that just because you're okay doesn't mean that someone else is. And perhaps that's why that triggered me so much. And triggered others, right? It's like, who are you to to make light out of something that's really hurtful to others? 
Yeah, I think comedy sometimes can be a trauma response in that there's been situations in my life where it's been so overwhelming and so horrifying that I kind of spontaneously started laughing at it, you know, and in a way because it was a coping mechanism. Like my body started voluntarily laughing because it's almost like, and I would love to look at the research of this, like laughing at horrible things. But it's to me, this is only my personal experience has been almost a, a compensation mechanism. Like, this is so crazy. Does that make any sense? It's almost like this spontaneous fit of laughter, not because you actually find the situation funny, but because it's like, it's almost like an instantaneous visceral reaction to the thing you're observing. Because if you don't laugh, you'll feel so completely overwhelmed by it. I don't know if that was her intent here, but I would imagine, Whitney, that after, you know, how long are we, 18, 19 months into this, people are trying to cope in different ways. And maybe laughing at it or making light of it is one way they're trying to cope with the horror. I wonder that. And the reason I'm saying that is I wonder if people who are taking a energetic stance of it's not that bad, COVID's not that bad, let us live our lives, it's whatever that is, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not shaming those people for that perspective. I wonder if that's a compensatory mechanism that they're not actually allowing themselves to feel the full horror, terror, confusion, loss of control. And by saying, it's not that bad, it's not going to touch me, is that's their way of maintaining control and certainty. It's a guess. It wouldn't surprise me. And one thing that comes up for me, and, and one of the reasons that I'm reading this book that I shared, is that I want to better understand how to handle my own grief, but others as well. And there have been times where, many, many times, where somebody has shared something that they're struggling with, and I kind of freeze up and I'm like, what is the best way for me to respond? And actually, right now, based on my current research I actually think that's the best question to ask out loud. So I've started asking people in those moments, how can I support you? Is this okay? Is this what you want? Versus trying to assume that I know what's best for them. And perhaps we can do things like trigger warnings, right? Like I'm very careful, even some of the words that we've used, the violence that we've talked about today, I feel like maybe we should put a trigger warning at the beginning of this. And I don't, it doesn't always occur to me. So I apologize to our listeners. We try to put it in our posts since we don't edit in a specific way. It's a little tough to put at the beginning of our episodes in hindsight, but maybe there's a way that we can. I feel like the trigger warnings are giving people the opportunity. It's kind of actually like a spoiler alert, right? Like, if I'm going to tell you details about a TV show, I will give you a heads up that I'm about to share something that's a spoiler. And so you can choose whether or not to keep reading, right? I think that is really helpful. And perhaps we can do that more in our comedy and more in our posts. It could have been very different if this person on Instagram used a carousel image which or a gallery image, as they call it, where you can put like one post after another. What if before you post something that could potentially be interpreted as insensitive or hurt someone or trigger someone, what if you put a post before that says like, trigger warning, there's a joke about COVID, you know? Now, some people might say that and go, oh, that's too much work. Oh, I don't want to have to do that. But wouldn't that be a little bit more compassionate if we thought more about that? And it's an opportunity that we can do verbally in our conversations. And I've actually been practicing myself too. When I'm 
I have a tendency to ask a lot of questions. And, you know, luckily we have a show called This Might Get Uncomfortable, which is like almost a <laughs> a trigger warning in itself. We have an explicit rating. When we bring guests on, we try to set the stage. We ask them, is there anything off limits that you don't want us to bring up? I wish I could do that more in my private personal conversations because there are some questions that I'll ask of people and wonder, ooh, I hope that they don't feel uncomfortable in me asking this question. I hope it's okay for me to ask. And I would like to ask them permission first. You and I have done this, and we've and we've actually talked about this on the show a while ago, Jason, is asking someone, hey, are you comfortable with this? Are you okay if we discuss this? Is this a good time for you? How can I support you? Just Asking those questions of people might feel awkward if we're not in the practice of it, but actually could be much more supportive because each person is responding to difficult times differently. And to bring it full circle, watching that Netflix show with my sister was another one of those opportunities. I asked her before we started, hey, do you want to watch the show with me? Neither one of us really knew what it was about. And I could tell based on how she was reacting to that first episode that she was deeply uncomfortable about it. And I actually felt a bit guilty because she seemed a lot more uncomfortable than I was. And I thought, gosh, am I a horrible sister that I just subjected my sister to this? Even though I didn't force her, <laughs> she, we could have turned it off at any point. But some people don't feel comfortable taking that initiative. That's why when we're deeply connected and in a partnership with someone, whether that's friendship or family or romance, it's like sometimes we both need to participate in asking and setting boundaries. And, you know, I've had in that experience of that show, I've, been trying to talk about it delicately to other people who have recommended it to. I said like, hey, you know, this is a very violent show, (laughs) but it's interesting. So maybe something you want to check out, right? But then I like even saying that out loud, I'm like, I kind of feel bad about it. Like, what if the show like this is traumatizing? I don't want to subject somebody else to trauma or triggers. The whole thing is uncomfortable. And then again, I still wonder, Jason, like, why am I so okay with seeing something like that? What is it within me? That's that's something I do not have the answer to in this moment. Why am I okay with seeing that type of violence? Well, as many episodes go on this podcast, we leave in questions. We don't necessarily leave or end with answers, but that's the nature of life. We ask questions. And I think if we ask good quality questions, they lead to even more questions, not necessarily answers. So as we leave you, dear listener, We're curious how you feel about the subject matter of violence and division and warring with each other and whether or not humanity can ever achieve world peace. All the things we discussed today, you can reach out to us directly. Whitney and I have an email we share for our company, Wellevator, which is the producer of this podcast and all the things. It's uh, hello at wellevator.com, which is also a website and our social media handles. Everything is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A. TR.com is the website, at Wellevator is the social handles. So DM us, comment on the show notes, which are also on, on the website, and let us know. And also, if you are really vibing with the podcast, if it's your first time, we have a Patreon account. We have so many wonderful patrons. Shout out to all our patrons who are supporting this podcast and also our private podcast called This Hits the Spot, which is a review and examination of our favorite new products, services, wellness goods, things that we're using in our personal lives to feel better and perform at our best. 
So with all that being said, we will have the links to the Patreon account. We'll have the links in the show notes. Everything we mentioned today, the wonderful book that Whitney mentioned about grief, everything will be in the show notes at wellevator.com. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with us. And we'll catch you with another episode soon. Take care. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 